Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Intercooler podcast is sponsored by JBR Capital, one of the UK's leading car finance specialists. Now, we only partner with like-minded organisations who really understand what it means to be a car enthusiast. And JBR Capital is a perfect fit for us. It's run by people who really love cars. And importantly, vehicle finance is all JBR Capital does. That alone is what the company exists to do. So whether you're looking to fund a classic sports car, supercar or hypercar, see what JBR Capital can do for you. And it's not just about very high-end, expensive unobtainium. In fact, the minimum borrowing is £25,000 and the average £80,000. Head to JBR Capital on social media or jbrcapital.com online and tell them the intercooler sent you. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 97 of the podcast, everybody. This episode is all about the devil in the detail, the small things that make a big difference. And we're going to look at it from two points of view. The first, the seemingly tiny things about a car that actually make a huge difference to the driving experience. And secondly, the apparently insignificant things that engineers have to do that might actually prevent a catastrophe. Um, Andrew, I think what, you've been road testing cars for 35 years or something. You must have come across... Oh, no, nothing like that. Nothing like that long. <laughs> 33 years. 33 okay. years. I, I, oh, no, 30, yeah. It'll be 35. I joined Autocar in June 88. So whenever that, whatever that equates to. Yeah. yeah. So 34 years this summer. Okay. Yes. Well, I've, I've added 16 months or something to your experience, but I'm sure you can forgive me. Um, okay. So where should we start? I mean, the, the one that sort of springs to mind immediately is seating position. Is that maybe it's quite yeah. an obvious one, but we can break it down into its constituent parts, can't we? Um, things like the H point. They can, call can it I just say before, before before we kick off that yeah. um, I, I think that people listening to this, there will be some who are thinking, "Yeah, this is really this is my really kind of you know almost sort of <laughs> surgical level of in depth geekiness," and there'll be others thinking, "Oh my goodness, they're really going to go off on one this week." Uh, just bear with us. Um, 
because it is it's so important and how really quite small changes and decisions that are made can so affect the, your enjoyment of a car um and i think that's the point of this podcast isn't it yeah. to try to illustrate uh, how these little details can actually add up to you know a big difference but yes um seating position far away mm. so h point hit point which really is about how high you sit in the car relative to the rest of the car isn't it um and i suppose from in this episode we're coming at it from a performance car point of view aren't we Certainly, that's what seems most significant to me. Um, and in a performance car, you want to be sat low, don't you? And there are many, well, most many... most people do, yeah. Yeah, I, I do, certainly. But it's not at all unusual, even on a, a magazine group test, to, when you're jumping in and out of cars, to sit in one and find that the seat's really high up. And you think, oh, yeah. okay, so not everyone wants to be on the floor, but I certainly do. You want to be... I can't, I can't bear this feeling of being perched on a car unless it's like a really really old car which is all part of the character of that car but you get i mean quite often um because cars come here for for work and they get dropped off by delivery drivers and you get into them and you're sort of <laughs> sitting up there with you and, and and you just say how can they and literally the first thing i do when i sit in a car is i just reach down my right hand side just to find that height adjustment lever and just pump it all the way down and i don't think i've ever driven a car which I haven't had the seat on the deck. Now I'm six foot three, and so that's probably another reason as well. But you're absolutely you want to feel in it, don't you? Yeah. You want to feel part of it. You don't want to feel on it. Mm. And it's a very it's a very um, off putting thing when you feel perched on top of the car, and it takes a long, long time for that impression to go away if it ever does at all. And there are lots of examples, particularly of um, ordinary cars turned into performance cars. So hot hatches, for instance, that do Yaris. That, Yaris, yeah, that really fall foul of this and. Um, previous generation Ford hot hatches, STs and RSs, Renault Sports as well. Um, and it's the, mo- it's the oddest thing when you just can't get the seat low enough. And so you never really feel like you're connected to the car, like you're properly in tune with it. Um, and, it's, and it's off-putting. The, 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 there have even been cars, and I'm thinking, and this is going back a bit, um, but I think BMWs used to do this in the sort of like the 90s. Um, whereas you always wanted the one with the manual seat adjustments because they put the electric motors under the seat and that would raise the seat and you couldn't understand why you drive two different you know five series or whatever and you felt absolutely home in one and just slightly out of place in the other and that that would often be it and it's you know these are i mean we're we're talking centimeters we may even be talking millimeters of difference but when you kind of know how low you can be at the car to not actually be able to get there it just or certainly in my head it just um, it makes a difference Mm. yeah it really does and I think um, one issue that certain hot hatches have or have had in the past is that even they have to conform to the same group-wide standards as a little one-litre shopping hatch. Um, and there are complications to do with uh, airbag deployment um, and crash protection and all sorts of other things. That means that even if the engineers wanted to put the seat on the deck, actually they, they can't do it. Um, so it's, it's an important first point, isn't it? And conversely, if you do sit low in a car, um, and as long as you can see enough, you just immediately feel so much more, int- like, like you can read the car and listen to the car much more accurately. Um, and there's probably a, a very good scientific explanation for it. Probably if you're closer to the car's center of gravity, you're, you're more in tune with it. Um, just so just briefly going back to what you were saying about you know, things like airbag deployment and you're absolutely right but even that is the result of a lost argument 
because what you will have is you will have a little hatchback um, where they're not really worried about you know where the seat goes, and you'll have a certain range of airbag deployment, and then that's that. And then someone will have come and and and, and at that time they were clearly always known that the hot hatch version was coming along. And there would have probably been a conversation where someone said, well, we want the driver to be much lower in the car, and therefore we want a greater range of airbag deployment. And someone goes, well, pff, sorry, the volumes just don't justify that level of re-engineering. So, you know, the, the, the steering wheel's going where the steering wheel is. It will have its range of movements, and the seating position will have to be restricted to accommodate that. Um, and so it's, you know, it, it's not that it can't be done. Like all these things, almost anything can be done if you're prepared to, you know, invest and do the engineering required to do it. But, you know, quite quite often it's like... It's like fuel tanks, isn't it, in hot hatches? You know, they've all got one of the great limitations of something, you know, like a, a Golf R or, a, you know, an 45 or something really, really fast in hatchback form is they've still got a fuel tank, which is the same size as one for, a, you know, a base car. So you get very limited range. And again, you know, with enough give and take and to and fro, they could probably have engineered a way out of that. But there's, there's no justification for it. Mm. That's a very good point, actually. And we know, certainly from a seating position point of view that it's correct because there will always be some who do it right because they they made the hard decisions early on didn't they um yeah okay so another one um and we'll stick with the seat for the time being is the inclination so how reclined you are and it's not just about how reclined the seat back is because you can knock any seat all the way back unless it's fixed but it's it's about the whole seat itself and how it's sort of canted over with the base of the seat as well and this is one reason why I really love McLarens, modern McLarens, because you you feel reclined in a car like you would do in a Le Mans car or in an F1 car, not to the same degree, but you've got some of that inclination going on, and somehow it makes a huge difference. And it just, I don't, again, it's probably it. Well, a, it feels purposeful, um, but b, I suspect you're getting closer to the centre of the car again. And as I said, modern McLarens do it well, but the P1, the moment I stepped in a P1, and I felt it's way more than any other McLaren I've sat in. And you're reclined with your legs high, your feet way out in front of you. And then the steering wheel comes all the way out to meet you. And then suddenly you feel like you're in the bath driving a car. And it's just a yeah. lovely, lovely sensation. But the best, the absolute Go best. On. And Maserati did this in the 70s. And it's such a... And it has happened since um, Ferrari did it with the LaFerrari. Um, it's such, to me, it's such a sort of obvious thing that you don't actually have a seat that moves at all. Why should you have to move to meet the car? Why not put the driver where the driver is meant to be rather than have that whatever it is, 70, 80 kilo mass migrating around the cabin? So just create the perfect driving position and put the driver there and then get the car to come and meet the driver. And that's where I think sliding pedal boxes are just the business. <laughs> and if you've ever done it, if you've ever been sat in a car where you literally just you're in a fixed position, which is the you know the perfect position for you to be, and then you pull the steering wheel towards you, and then you pull the pedals towards you, it's you kind of think to yourself, this is how it should be. You know, the car moves to fit you, not the other way around. And it's so natural. Um, and intuitive and i guess it's all just money isn't it it's probably cheaper to engineer seat runners than sliding pedal boxes i don't know but um w those very few cars i mean the maserati bora had that you know, over 50 years ago and it's just never taken on and if you think about it from a safety position and from an airbag deployment position you know the drive you you know you always know where the driver's going to be he or she is never going to move i mean that must make 
it'd be interesting to talk to David Tuig about that and, and try to understand why that's not done more often. Mm. LaFerrari um, did it, didn't but it? It's a, yeah. Yeah. That's a very good anyway, point. Sorry. So, let, okay, let's just get stuck into a couple of the things about seating position that can go all wrong. Um, I'm thinking pedal offset, particularly in a car built for a left-hand drive market and converted to right. It's pro- maybe less of an issue now, but there was always said, the Italian supercars of the 70s, the steering wheel will be over here and the pedal's over there somewhere. And you have to sort of cant yourself across the cabin just to be able to approach them both. But it, it, it wouldn't just be that. You would have cars, and I'll try, I'm failing to think of examples, where you know the seat wouldn't even be point, pointing completely straight and the steering wheel wouldn't be exactly precisely right in front of you and then you would have the pedals you know offset one way one direction or the other so you kind of you know your entire body had to kind of you know zigzag around the architecture of the car and and it's funny because when you get into them and you just you know you find the pedals you don't think about it and it's only when you've been on the road for a while and because you're you're effectively driving out of alignment um that it becomes noticeable and you know the aches and the pains and you got the you, you get you get the twinges and it's just not a comfortable experience um and you know as, as i think everybody understands and knows that you know to enjoy a car really over long periods of time you know job one is that you've got you've got to be comfortable in it and do you is that the main issue or do you think when you're driving one of these cars and you're on a great road and you're really stuck in to the driving experience do, do you think it can have a negative impact on that or do you actually just forget about these these details you forget about it but you i mean mm. to, to, to me I, I i forget about them entirely um because you're concentrating on your driving and where you're going and everything else um no to me it's it, it's a kind of it's a long distance thing and you know and, and you're there um and you're always just and, and, the, and the, the, one of the real problems is sometimes you don't really notice it until you do and then once you notice it, you <laughs> just can't forget it yeah it's like that sort of noise. I was uh, I was in a restaurant with some friends on Saturday night, um, and we'd had a lovely meal, and then suddenly said, "Where's that music coming from?" And there was a sort of thumping noise from you know somewhere. Um, and once they'd mentioned that, it had been going on all evening. I hadn't heard it, and once they mentioned, it, I couldn't hear anything else. And it's just and it's it's exactly the same. It's one of those things that sort of misalignment. And if you kind of look down and you actually realise, I mean, there are there are lots of cars, uh, very few these days, but in the past where the clutch would be to the right of the steering column, let alone the brake or the accelerator. Um, and you just think, oh, that's just crazy. And the moment you see it and you, and you, and you look at your body and how misaligned it is, um, then you kind of focus on it. And then to an extent, and it's not massive, but it's always there, your driving enjoyment is compromised. So another one um, is the the steering wheel offset so we've mentioned it can often you find the wheel is slightly to the left or slightly to the right but also the inclination yeah. of the steering wheel so you yeah. can imagine it can either be vertical like a, a racing car i suppose or it can be close to horizontal like a bus and that's that that must just be the oddest sensation particularly in a fast car and i wonder if you've come across any p- particularly quick cars that have that kind of almost bus like steering wheel inclination some, I mean, I guess the F40 is the, given that, that that's my self-declared favourite car <laughs> ever, then it's, you know, it's, it's clearly not done me. Yeah. It's, it, I think people are sensitive to different things. Um, and I'm aware of what we're talking about. I mean, the old, you know, minis and Rover Metros yes. and things like that, they were, they were really, really bad at that. Um, it's not something that's ever really bothered me. Mm. I don't know why. What, what's, um, what gets other, me about other it? Other aspects of steering. 
what, what gets me about it, and I'm not driven too many cars, is that your your hands are moving not just around a circle, but back yeah. to front as well. And yeah. it's probably normal when you've just you're just holding the wheel at quarter to three. But the moment you have to start letting go of the wheel or twirling it around a little bit, it must just be another bit of geometry that you have to do in your mind that just distracts slightly from what you're doing. Perhaps actually when you get stuck in, it's, it's not an issue at all. But I've always, you know, when you see bits of footage or just a photograph of a car with a wheel at that angle, I just think that must be slightly awkward. Okay. I'll tell you what does annoy me. Mm. Um, and again, you don't really see this so much anymore. The centers of steering wheels that aren't in the center in of the, the steering wheel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, I mean, the most obvious example is anything that was built on the Porsche 924 platform. So 944s, 968s, that sort of thing. Um, and, what, and they do it because when you're sitting there at the straight ahead, um, if you offset the center of the steering wheel, then, you know, and so effectively you raise the steering wheel, um, then you've got more leg, then you've got more room for your legs underneath, um, and it effectively creates the, 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 the image of there being a more spacious cabin. The, the only problem is that if you need to turn through 180 degrees, you find the steering wheels jamming on your legs because then the height you've gained becomes the reverse. Um, and that really annoys me because you can be going through, you know, with your hands on the rim, you're going through this arc, and then suddenly your right hand sort of bumps into your leg. Um, and you can't quite work out why, because when it's straight ahead, the steering wheel's nowhere near your leg. And then you turn it through 180 degrees and it's brushing against it. Um, that used to really keep me <laughs> off. Okay, one more. Um, and again, modern McLaren's a good example of this. But the best example of great visibility um, that I've come across in a quick car is an original NSX. Um, and actually, it's no coincidence, yeah. is it, that McLarens are ultimately inspired by the NSX in, in many ways. <clears throat> but the, in, in, in the Honda, what you find is that you've got a big glass house, very thin pillars, and so your peripheral vision is really good. Um, but then you have this sort of IMAX view ahead of you because you've got a very low scuttle, um, and the windscreen is quite tall as well. Um, and so you feel as though you're watching the stones in the road rush underneath the front tyres. Mm. And the, the lovely yeah. thing about that is that you just... Without thinking, you just position the car on the road with so much confidence and so much precision. And it just makes, makes the car driving feel smaller. easier. Yeah, it makes the car feel much smaller. And particularly, yeah. with, particularly with, a far, with really fast cars like that, um, whatever people say, the most important thing when you're driving cars like that is confidence. Um, and that's why I've, I've struggled with things like God, you can feel so sorry for me. Aventadors, um, <laughs> where you get this kind of or letterbox Andrew. to peer out of. Um, yeah. And a big wide car um, because you can't really position it on the road. And the thing you get, you get into an NSX and, and, and particularly modern McLarens, and it's like being in a goldfish bowl. You can see so much, um, and it just makes the job so much easier. Um, can I can I briefly just go back to steering wheels? Yeah, and then I'm going to come back to visibility, <laughs> back and forth here. <laughs> Carry on. Okay, okay. So, no, so okay, so steering wheels. There's, I mean, there's an entire book you can write about steering wheels. To me, the important things about steering wheels, there are so many things. You think, you know, so many people think, well, a steering wheel is a steering wheel. Obviously, the diameter of the wheel is important. The level of power assistance that are going through it is important. The accuracy of the, of the, of the rack is important. But, you know, things like the material around the outside of the steering wheel is so important, but the material inside the wheel is so important. Um, when I had my, um, my scruffy old 
911 2.7 RS replica. Um, and I first got it and I took it to Richard Tuthill for one or two things. Uh, and he said, so the, the first thing he said, well, that's a really horrible steering wheel in it. And I replaced, I don't know what it was, but it was something. And it had this big squishy rim. Um, and I replaced it with a Momo prototipo. And suddenly the whole feel of the car changed. Suddenly it was, it was honestly, it was like taking off oven gloves and, you know, and then driving. And, and you suddenly feel the car for the first time. And it's, we always bang on about feel, don't we? Um, and, you know, it's, it's where your hands connect to the car. And there's so much information and so much enjoyment and so much confidence that you can get through that medium. And yet, um, you know, you get some big wheel with some thick, squishy room. You know, any feedback that's gone up the steering wheel, and goodness knows it's hard enough to come about these days, come about these days in the days of electrically assisted power steering. Um, if you've got this big squishy room, it's going to disappear and you'll get no feel at all. Whereas if you have something which is quite firm, I mean, not rock solid because that's not very comfortable, but, you know, enough to convey, it can literally, and it did, I've seen it myself in a car I've owned, it can transform the feel of your car. So there you go. It's so true. Um, yeah, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, BMWs had big squishy leather steering wheels. Didn't they? And yeah. they were horrible. They were really, really horrible. horrible. Um, all I wanted to say about the about visibility was that I realised how important it really was when I drove a DB11, and it happened to be an AMR version. And I think I really noticed it then because it is left-hand drive, um, and we're pretty familiar with left-hand drive cars. But even now, it just takes me a little bit of time to get accustomed to being on the wrong side of the car. Um, but I, I, it just took me so long to grow in confidence in this thing. I was thinking, why is this? What, why am I struggling to feel at home in this car? And I think it's visibility. You know, that's, that car's got a long old bonnet. It's got a big, tall, yeah. tall engine that the bonnet has to go over. And so you realise that you're not seeing the road rush underneath the car. You're, you're seeing a point in the distance that you're aiming for. Um, exactly, exactly. The, 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 the first thing that you can see of what you're actually driving on is so far ahead of the car mm. that it's quite difficult to connect the two, isn't it? Mm. It really is. Yeah. Um, Okay, another one I want to give do you, you find is... That you get used to it after... Sorry, do you find you get used to that after a while and then it becomes less of a problem? I think you, I think you do, and you probably um, you, you know, account for it in your subconscious without really thinking about it, and it just becomes okay. But if you then swapped into a car that had great visibility, you'd realise what you were missing immediately. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, okay, so a good supportive seat... And the ultimate expression of a good supportive seat is a racing seat and a harness. And this is, I, I love driving racing cars, even as slowly as I drive them, because you're just so tightly strapped into the thing. And so you're not moving around at all. Um, you're properly held in position. And the difference that makes for me is that it, it means all of my limbs are just there to operate the car, the pedals or the steering wheel or the gear shift. And you're never having to brace yourself with an arm or a leg as you go around a corner. And so it means that you can just be much more accurate with every single input. Um, now, it's, I, I don't tend to want a harness on the road because it's a bit of a pain. Um, plenty of cars have them, I suppose. Very high performance cars do have them. But a, just a good, supportive, probably fixed back bucket seat makes a huge difference. And it's um, the big difference to me, um, and you know, I know this from doing long, you know, quite a bit of long distance racing, 
is the fatigue or the fatigue you don't feel because it's what you say you're not moving around and, and you know i just trying you know, sometimes i do race old stuff um you know which don't even have seat belts at all and you're constantly trying to particularly for quite a big bloke you know stop yourself from migrating around the cabin um and it can be really really tiring um you know people who've done karting will will we'll know this sensation it can even even in a cart you know it's a remarkably tiring thing to do given how light carts are and one of the reasons for that is you know you're constantly trying to keep yourself um you know sat in your seat and it's and and the other thing that people don't appreciate is if you are wearing a harness just how tight it needs to be to stop yourself moving around basically when i'm sitting in a car um with a harness about to go out on the track i will tighten it up to the point where it's actually a bit uncomfortable where breathing is just a little bit harder than, than than it would be, and then I think, well, okay, I'm not going to go. And then the mo- and, and you think to yourself, this can't be right. I'm never going to be out on the track, and my my sort of breathing rate's going to go up, and it's going to be really uncomfortable. But it never is. It never ever is. Um, you get out there, and you literally don't think about it again, um, apart from the fact that you're absolutely bolted in place. I mean, engineers wouldn't, you know, mount a steering rack to a a flexible platform would they because you know the car steering would be horrible so why would you mount yourself flexibly to your car you know you've got to think of it you know you are a component which needs to be as rigidly mounted as possible for you to be able to do the job that you have to do in that car um so it's really really important i like you i love driving cars with harness i love that feeling of being just completely it's got nothing to do with safety although clearly obviously for racing it's, it's terribly important but it's just that feeling of being bolted into the car and also, you know, you just literally feel you are more physically connected to the car. So you get better feel through everything as a result. Um, and so, yeah, so if you do find yourself on a track in a car with a harness, do it up tight. You'll be amazed the difference. Yeah. OK, let's knock out a, a, a few others quickly. Um, a manual gear shift. OK, so it's obvious that you, you'd rather have a gear lever that what's the phrase falls readily to hand or some falls it readily to hand and, the old road tester yes and then it's got a, a good throw and a nice weight to it but the point i want to make is that it needs to be really well matched to the weight of the clutch pedal because if you're driving along and you come to change gear and you you depress the clutch pedal and it's very light so there's no resistance there at all and then you find a heavy gear lever you're aware that they're two very different components and it it feels inconsistent and just is somehow not pleasant. However, when you drive a car that has a perfectly matched clutch pedal weight and gear shift weight and throw, it just feels like one component. And therefore, changing gear is one swift fluid motion, both limbs, um, pedal and lever, all in harmony. And it's, it's yeah. lovely. I think it actually extends beyond that. I think, you know, I think that if you get in a car... And you suddenly feel that all the control weights feel well matched. You know, the first thing to me that does is makes me think that someone who thinks like me has thought really hard about this and they've cared enough. And if they care enough to get that sort of geeky detail right, they've probably, you know, tried that hard with the rest of the car. So you know, it's inc- you're absolutely right. It's, it is extraordinarily um, important and again it's i don't think it's things a thing that a lot of people think about until you suddenly get in a car where all the control rates are right and it's it just becomes easy to drive um which again frees up brain space for you to be able to think about other things but as you say it's just becomes a much more pleasant um intuitive experience yeah and porsche sports cars do it well even just the regular caymans and boxsters 911s they do it brilliantly also the ford fiesta st though one of the things i love about that car 
Um, and actually, this brings us on to gearing. And we talk about <laughs> Porsches, GT Porsches particularly, I suppose. The GT4, yes. um, maybe more than any other, they have very long gearing. Um, yeah. Does that bother you? And why does it bother you? Yes. Because... It bo- <laughs> well, because... Okay, it bothers me because it bothered me for lots of reasons. One is, you know, if you have a car with very long gearing, then its acceleration in any individual gear is going to be not as good as it could be if it had shorter gearing. And in cars, and in some cars, in limousines and that sort of thing, then that's absolutely as it should be. But in a car like a Porsche, you want, you know, that 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 sound you get um, when you go out through the box and the revs don't drop much from gear to gear because the ratios are really close um to me that's the sound of racing that's the sound of sports cars that's the sound of fun and and so one reason is that um another reason is that you know you, you also get you get so much redundancy don't you you know in those porsches you know by the time you're you know you might have a six-speed gearbox but you know you're probably breaking the law by a considerable amount before you've even got to the end of third and so you have this sort of redundancy and the other thing is i know why they do it they do it for um, decent, you know, fuel and CO2 and, and, and that sort of thing. It's for, it, it's for laboratory testing. Um, so that, you know, the longer the gearing of the car, um, the better the outcomes um, that you get in the laboratory. And, you know, and, and, and also, if you have cars that have normally aspirated engines, so they don't have that big slug of low-down torque, which you can propel you through even quite high gearing, then the cars feel, you know, sluggish until you've got the revs up. Um, and maybe in a Porsche, that's okay. But you don't, even with Porsches, even with a Cayman, you don't always want to be maxing it out. Um, and it's actually one of the things that I really liked about the turbo engines. And we can complain about the noise that they made and how inappropriate a flat four turbo is for a car like a Boxster or a Cayman. But one of the things that they did is they brought torque and they actually made the gearing of those cars feel um, less intrusive. Uh, and you know, with things like the GTSs and the GT4s with those four-liter engines, they're they're nothing like as bad as they were. But if you look at the kind of standard pre-turbo Caymans and Boxsters, that was far. And frankly, they were the that was the only serious dynamic fault those cars had. Their gearing was just too long, and you were always stirring around trying to keep the revs up in you know low low gears, just just so that you could carry the gearing the car had. And you just thought, well, this is Porsche and it shouldn't be like this. It should have a, you know, I always like the fact that, um, I suspect Porsche that Ferraris always used to do this. They always used to reach their maximum speed at maximum revs in top gear. Yeah. So that's what they do. They kind of think, okay, well, this car's going to do whatever it is, 175 miles an hour. So, and it'll rev to 7,700. 7, so at 7,705, that's the speed it'll be doing. Um, now, I understand that there are kind of reasons that cars don't do that anymore, particularly because if you have a car that is that um, tightly geared, there can be a pain on long runs. But, you know, what I would be in favour of in, you know, in cars like Porsches is, you know, you've got a six-speed gearbox, have five really close ratios, and then just stick a loggy at the end for when you sit on the motorway. So you, so you kind of have a sports car for the first five gears, and then you have a cruising gear. Um, and, yeah, that's what I would do. But you're absolutely right. It's, um, it's really, really important. And it's not just about the whether they're long or short actually the the ratios need to be well matched to the torque delivery of the engine um they do and and well spaced relative to each other yeah yeah um a good example is if you've got a very torquey turbo diesel engine um but if you've got very very short ratios you're through all that torque very quickly and it's all gone and you think 
oh, I've, I've got nothing left. Whereas if you've got a very torquey engine and long gearing, you pull through each ratio and make the most of all that torque and acceleration, then it really yeah, works. Absolutely. I also remember driving a Honda Accord Type R, which is a, it's got a very, very revvy VTEC engine, hasn't it? And that, that, that engine comes on cam at a certain point. I can't remember. 5,000, 6,000 RPM, something like that. Yeah, about that. Yeah. Um, and if you rev it all the way to the red line and bang the next gear in, you get back into the VTEC zone. But if you yes. shift a little bit early or you're a bit hesitant with your shift, you drop you're off just the cam left, aren't you? and you wait yeah. for it to come back on, um, which is really annoying. It's like being marooned, isn't it? It's like being stuck in the doldrums in a ship. You just, oh, come on, come on, come on. And you, you, just, you, know, you, can do, you actually go back down to lower gear to give it, to give it more. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, certainly the point about turbo diesels, which have huge amounts of low down torque, but only go to like 4,000 revs, then you have to have long gearing, don't you? Um, because otherwise, you know, you'd just always be changing gear and revving it out and it'd be complete pain. Yeah, the, it has to suit the powertrain. Last one I want to offer you is clear dials. Um, and the point here is that, particularly when you're driving spiritedly, shall we say, you, you want to be able to find, get the information you want, probably revs, probably maybe gear, maybe speed. You just want to do it with a glance. Do it with a quick glance. The moment you're having to take your eye off the road and search for that little bit of information that you want in a very busy, unclear cluster, well, you can travel very, cover an enormous amount of ground in the time it takes to do that. Um, and all of a sudden, you find that you're not comfortable in the car. And it's, 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 it's a thing. I mean, it has been getting worse for a long time. I mean, I think the clearest instruments that were ever in cars, and also, you know, where the instruments are. You know, Persia have this thing now where you don't see the instruments through the steering wheel they have these tiny little spidery dials which are perched above it and it just it just looks terrible um i think they call it their eye cockpit um you know if you go back i mean you know i think if you go and look at a at an early three series bmw you know an e21 from the late 1970s you go and look, just go and look at the cabin in that it is so clear the dials i mean i think they're pretty much unimprovable um, the information is so clearly presented. You know exactly, and the dials are really big. You don't have to squint at them, and they've got big, thick letters, so you don't have you, know, you haven't got these spidery little print, um, and they've got big, thick needles. And it's you know it's it, it may even look you know a bit like it's the sort of thing that, that, that a child would do. But actually, when you are you know driving hard, driving fast, you want your information to be presented as simply as possible. So. It, so on this conversation, what do you, what, what do you think of head-up displays? Big fan? Hate them? Um, I quite like them when it's sort of minimal information. And, yeah. and when they're not right in your line of sight, but just, just slightly, slightly lower than the point that you want to be looking at on the road, um, yeah. then, I think, then I think they can work. I love them. I absolutely love them. I think they are a fantastic piece of technology, um, particularly when, you know, they kind of like flash a bit when you need to change up. And then you, you know, you, so you then never take your eyes off it because you never stop looking through the screen. Um, I think they're fantastic. Um, but I think they're also an admission that the way that conventional instruments have been done these days um, don't do the job well enough. Because it's so, isn't it? It's all about you know, making cabins look pretty and beautiful for when someone steps into the car for the first time in the showroom and hasn't really thought about how these things are going to actually work. And it's, you know, it's, it's function following form at a distance of, you know, 20 miles again. And um, yeah, so things like head-up displays, which actually write that wrong, um, I think are really important. Um, okay, so as I said, I wanted to get another perspective on this. 
So I spoke to our in-house car engineer, David Tuig, um, and he came up with some brilliant stuff that I would never have thought of. Some of them are to do with um, the small things that make a big difference to the driving experience, and some are about the small things that engineers have had to do to um, potentially avert catastrophe. Um, it's all to do with devil, the devil being in the detail. The first one he came up with, we've spoken about manual gear shifts, but of course it's important if you've got paddles, that that paddle shift feel is right. Um, and he says the feel of a, a paddle shift depends on fairly obvious things like paddle rigidity, rigidity, which is an important point, you can't just have a flimsy paddle, and the length of the throw. But on less obvious things, like the very detailed S form, and bear with me, of the tiny cam that actions <laughs> the switch at the base of the paddle, the shape of the cam, its surface finish to micron level, and even, oh, loving this. even the viscosity of the grease used to lubricate the cam and the switch plunger. And once they've got all of that stuff right, they then have to match the electrical switch point to the precise gearbox mechanical torque interruption in timing and in the actual shape of how the torque drops off between clutch, disengage, and engage. And so, there you were thinking it was just a paddle. Yeah. It's just an extraordinary amount of work that they have to do, isn't it, to get that shift paddle to feel right. Um, and he, oh, on he get, paddles, sorry, I've got to ask you this. Yeah. Fixed paddles or paddles which turn with the wheel? Um, I always preferred paddles that turn with the wheel. Um, because I don't like that sensation of coming out of a corner and you're on the red line and you have to shift up and you have to take your hand off the wheel to find it. Um, but my Alpine has got fixed paddles and perhaps I'm just used to them now, but I think it's nice knowing, always knowing where it is. That's it. To me, I think I'm in the minority because I think most people I speak to say they want paddles which move the wheel um, for exactly the reasons you said. You don't have to take your hand off the wheel. Um, but because my brain is so small... If, for instance, I've got I've got 180 degrees of lock-in, um, and I don't want to have to think about oh, hang on, so the paddle which was on the right is now on the left. So if I want to change up, then I've got to use a different hand, not a different hand, but I mean I've got, I've got to you know, literally on the different side of the wheel. I just I just like knowing where things are. And, and it's particularly when you're admit, then, then, it's particularly when you're manoeuvring, isn't it? And yeah, the up paddle might be on the other side of the steering wheel all, of, all yeah. of a sudden and when you've got traffic behind you and you're looking all around you and you're trying to work out where the paddle is yeah that yeah if you've got a small brain like us but also the, the length of the paddle um the distance of the paddle from the steering wheel you don't want to be grasping air do you but you don't want it to be so close to the wheel that your fingers get barked on it it's uh, it's an immense science isn't it um and we're just talking about a little bit of metal that you pull to change gear. <laughs> yeah, so on, on I've my I've never thought about that sort of the, the, the surfaces and the viscosity. That's fascinating stuff. It's extraordinary. So I've changed the paddles on my Alpine just because um, David Pook, Life 110, he, he does some aftermarket paddles for the car. And they bring the paddles slightly closer and the paddles are longer, both top and bottom. Um, so they, they actually do make a nice difference. Um, but I need to give you more of this David Tuig stuff because there is some genius in here. Yeah, I do. It's brilliant. Yeah. So he, he talks about steering column modulation. And he says, have a look at the column in your car. It's not straight. It will have at least one, maybe two universal joints. So imagine from the box, yeah. the middle of the steering wheel, it has to go behind the dash and then it will go diagonally down 
into the sort of engine bay somewhere, and then it'll probably change direction again to get down to the rack. So you've got two universal joints. Um, he says it will have compound angles angling down towards the rack and almost certainly in towards the center line of the car. This means that as you turn the wheel, you don't have a perfectly smooth circular transmission of steering wheel torque input to the steering rack. It wobbles or the torque waveform is a bit lumpy. Cars with well-designed systems will minimize this modulation and it's almost impossible to feel. Cars with poor modulation will have a strangely unpredictable or floaty steering feel at times and the driver will not know why. A dead giveaway is to see if the car, in, if the wheel in your car is flat, dead parallel to your shoulders. If it is, then the, the manufacturer has found a way to deal with that modulation. If it's angled in towards the center line in a noticeable way, more than two or three degrees, they've probably struggled and they've had to angle the wheel like that to cheat. That's fascinating. <laughs> That's absolutely fascinating. It's good stuff, isn't it? Um, so this Who is knew? where. This is where it moves into the things that the engineers have to think about to stop your car, something terrible happening. So this isn't necessary to do with the driving experience. But again, he talks about the Alpine. He says, look at the air intake, over, so over your shoulder on the A110, just behind the window. There's a little black plastic grill in there. It's there specifically to catch cigarette butts. Um, and it's perfectly designed to stop a lighted butt chucked out of the car ahead. So not out of your own window, but out of the car in front. Um, so that, that grill will catch a cigarette butt. Actually, the air filter is a fireproof type, so it wouldn't, that wouldn't start a fire anyway. But um, the need is there based on actual, he says, bad things happening in the past. So clearly there is a need to stop a lit cigarette butt going into the intake. But in, importantly, that grill has been tested to make sure it does not restrict the airflow and therefore reduce power, even at high altitude and even for the higher tuned A110S engine. So years and years and years ago, when they were thinking about um, the original car designing this grill, they had to make sure that the next model coming a few years down the line, that the engine would still generate the power that it needed to at high altitude with that grill in place. Just on the off chance that somebody might fling a lit cigarette out of the car in front. And it just happens to go down. And it's quite, it's a very small opening, actually. Um, but these are the things that they have to think about. And it's, it particularly was the case, um, David says, while working on the Zoe, which was one of the first mainstream EVs. So David and his team, they had to actually define many things that were obvious on a combustion car but had not been done on an EV before. So they had to think about all these things for the first time. Um, and this one's actually quite frightening, potentially. Um, in the passenger footwell of a Zoe, there's a, under the carpet, I think, there's a little door secured with curious square-headed fasteners. Under that door is the service disconnect plug for the battery. If you pull that big orange plug the 400 volt power will be fully isolated from the rest of the car. It's used by Renault workshop staff when servicing the car. But here's the thing. It also needs to be quickly accessible to first responders, the fire service. Um, you know, if there's an accident, they need to be able to quickly cut the 400 volt juice. Um, and they might even have to cut the occupants out. So they need to be able, they need to know that the car is basically off. And the car may well be on its side or on its roof. This little door gives them access to be able to do that. 
But here's the thing, David goes on, you do not want your kid idly pulling up this door and pulling the plug when you're doing 70 miles an hour on the M25. Bad things will happen. So it needs to be kid and tamper-proof, yet quick and easy for a firefighter to remove. What do you do? The solution. David says, they worked with the fire services to identify the tools that they always have on them. And they always have a small, square-headed little key that they use to open fire hydrants. So the little fasteners on the Zoe trapdoor are designed to match those keys and allow a firefighter to remove the door in less than 30 seconds, even if they don't have a crowbar to hand. So a tool that every firefighter would have with them and nobody else. Yeah. Yeah. That's so clever. It's brilliant, isn't it? Okay, last one. And you'll like this one. Um, It almost made me well up, actually, this one. He says, again with EVs, even the little pedestrian warning sound generators that are now mandatory for EVs are tricky in detail. You know when you hear an EV drive by in town and it makes an odd warbling sound or something. That's a mandatory sound because those cars are so quiet. They have to make a noise so that people can hear them. Um, When testing them on the Zoe, we found that the synthesized electronic tones could fool guide dogs for the blind. It turns out that dogs have very poor stereo vision and they judge car speeds mainly by the Doppler effect with their ears, not just by looking at them the way we do. So if the sound is not very carefully designed, the dogs can get it wrong with worrying results, particularly if they underestimate speeds. So acoustic engineers build in tones that are inaudible to humans, but allow dogs to correctly judge the speed of oncoming EVs. That's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? They should make more of this stuff. It's fascinating. (laughs) I mean, I think people would also understand that, you know, the engineers aren't just these faceless geeks doing stuff, that they're actually really thinking hard and caring about, you know, and just trying to see, engineer a car so that the law of unintended circumstances never, ever kicks in. Um, That's fantastic. We ought to get David on this podcast because I suspect he'd be, he, he could go for hours on stuff like this, couldn't he? Yeah. Oh, he could. I did a, a TI Super podcast with him, which is for app subscribers only. It's on the app now. Um, we talk a bit about his career, but there's just so much to discuss with him. Um, and yeah. as you say, it, having a conversation with him just makes you realise the lengths that they go to and how diligent they are. Um, yeah, I think it's extraordinary stuff. Brilliant. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just in awe of that, um, the guide dog thing. That's fantastic. Brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, David, for your input there. It was excellent. Um, there you go. The devil is in the detail. Hopefully you're convinced of that now. Small things about a car really do make a, a big, big difference. Um, so we'll leave that one there. Uh, thank you for listening. Please rate and review the podcast. And also, wherever you get your podcast, just hit follow or hit subscribe, whatever it is. That makes a big difference, and it really helps us to find a new and bigger audience for this podcast, which clearly is important to us. Um, Download the Intercooler app, start your free trial, uh, and as ever, we'll, we'll be back to talk to you again next week. Thanks very much.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry champagne, Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.